Welcome to the Masterminds Podcast Channel, brought to you by DonorSearch, a leader in prospect research tools and analytics, and your host, one of America's top philanthropic experts and fundraising consultants, Jay Frost. is author of The Data-Driven Annual Fund and a popular speaker, trainer, and social media voice on nonprofit fundraising. Following decades as a fundraising leader at several nonprofits across the country and a consultant for large national firms, he founded Tactical Fundraising Solutions to guide charitable organizations in building the systems and infrastructure that supports donor-centered fundraising. A certified fundraising executive, certified master trainer, an instructor in fundraising and nonprofit management at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Clay was recently named one of the top 20 charity influencers online. We caught up with Clay when he was on the road this week. Hi, Clay. Uh, thanks very much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Yay, the pleasure is all mine. I, of course, it's said that everything that happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and I hope that isn't true today, at least for this conversation. Sure. Right. Although today you're not actually in Vegas. Where, where are you? I am actually in uh, Kansas City. Just spent the morning with the uh, Kansas, the AFP chapter here, talking about uh, data security and privacy and the ethics of prospect research. So good times. Yeah, and you're presenting with uh, with Ryan Warnicky, Is that right? I am indeed. Uh, this is just one of the many things that you address. <laughs> so I know we can dive into that a little bit in our conversation. Um, but before we go there, uh, I'm interested to know, of course, how you got to where you are today, and in particular, maybe to start with the place where you live and what brought you there. Can you tell us about what brought you to Las Vegas? Sure, absolutely. Um, in 2002, I was living and working in Chicago as a fundraiser, which is technically where I started my career. Um, really understanding fundraising as a profession, but um, the fundraising consulting firm IDC, which was uh, run by uh, William Fried and Diane Carlson, um, hired me as an account executive, as a senior account executive, and uh, that's what took me out to Henderson, Nevada, uh, and I was there uh, with that firm for about 12 years, and then uh, from there have been in uh, frontline fundraising in Las Vegas. Uh, since then. And uh, going to Vegas, that, that must be a very different kind of nonprofit environment. You and I have talked about <laughs> offline, but can you, can you share with us how it's different from maybe what you see around the country, Kansas City and elsewhere, uh, especially in your work as sure. now? Yeah, sure. So, you know, when you have the fortune to start your fundraising in career in a town like Chicago, which is an old town and has you know, a long history of philanthropy and fundraisers and philanthropists and, you know, uh, nonprofits that are decades, if not really centuries old. Um, and you go to Vegas, we're still a very young town in Vegas. And, you know, the joke is true. What happens in Vegas, et cetera, right? We have a very public reputation, but Vegas is a very conservative city. Um, the, the folks that live there are, we are, you know, as, <laughs> suburban and normal as anybody else the minute you get off the strip you're into you know regular neighborhoods and 
Um, it, it's really an incredible community, and what I love most about it is everybody that's in Vegas is kind of you kind of adapt that that Western frontier mentality, like anything's possible, and we're gonna try this. And you know, of course, it's Vegas. If we try it and it doesn't work, we'll blow it up and try something different. So that sort of almost entrepreneurial spirit, but love a challenge spirit kind of pervades everything. And it's just it's an amazing community just full of wonderful people and great fundraisers and great philanthropists. A lot of our charities are really young. Um, you know, our first generation, many have been founded in the last 20 or 30 years. So we have a lot of our founders still active on boards. Um, a lot of our CEOs and executive directors are the first uh, you know, leadership of the organization. So it's still very new. And there's, of course, very different challenges with and opportunities with fundraising in that kind of environment. You also have, from the donor perspective, have, I mean, because we're growing um, constantly. So yes, there's a core group of folks that were born and raised in Vegas, but the vast majority of the population comes from out of town. So everybody brings their philanthropic interests and priorities with them, and they're used to how it works in, in their city. And, you know, we do love a party uh, in Vegas. So we, we run a lot of galas with a lot of um, engagement versus some of that traditional, you know, uh, tried and true. But we're growing, um, and it's an exciting time. And there is, in my opinion, um, there's nothing like the uh, philanthropic spirit in, in that city and the way the city just comes together as a community. And, you know, we're going to build this in the desert and make it happen. You know, it's funny as you, as you say this and you describe it as a, as a conservative place, but then a place where if it doesn't work, you blow it up and start all over again. It, it, <laughs> right. Those concepts uh, are interesting since one speaks to kind of tradition, but the other to making everything new all the time. I wonder how you how those things then come together in the life of the community is, and especially in the life of, life of nonprofits that are trying to raise money and and build those long term relationships, not just start them new every time. Well, right, and and you know, there's a spirit of um, we're certainly not afraid to innovate, right? Um, we're certainly not afraid to try something new, and if that didn't work, then let's try something different. But because you're dealing with philanthropic dollars, there's also that level of, mm, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of we need to be responsible to that donor and responsible to what our funders want and balance the needs of the community. So while you have that kind of innovative, fresh approach, let's not be afraid of what's been and what was, you know, there does come a little bit of, of that conservative reaction. It, it's almost like a working dichotomy, right? We're constantly in a you know, try it, do something different, you know, carve it out of the desert and make magic happen where really, you know, this, this shouldn't be possible out here. Tempered with the yeah, <laughs> healthy uh, fear of, man, we got to get this right because there are people that are depending on us. Um, certainly as the city and the community grow, um, we are facing the same situations and problems and opportunities that any other city is with homelessness, food insecurity, you know, all of the education, oh boy, all of those things that come with a growing city that require some innovative solutions. Um, we are wrestling just as hard as the rest of the country is with many of them. So a lot of the things that, as you say, that we're experiencing all around the country, but then probably a little more spectacle than you get in your average your average town, um, and and I wonder if 
uh, I know you were a theater guy. Um, so I was group, yep. How you moved from kind of the stage to the page or from, from that work to development, but uh, maybe in a way uh, there is kind of a natural continuity there. I, but maybe you can tell us about how you began in development because didn't you also start in that world of theater? So technically speaking, um, I started in 2020 as kind of a big year because I can actually say that this is 30 years in, that I've been in fundraising for 30 years. Um, my first summer, 1990, uh, I was an intern at a small summer stock theater in the mountains of North Carolina and working in the box office and you know playing small roles in the company. And that box office work, working with the, the patrons, um, because all of our ticket sales included some level of contribution and being front and centered and asking um, the the uh, the producer of the season took me along on one of the what I call you know really truly my first major gift visit um, sitting down with a board member to ask them to help us replace the uh, air conditioner when the air conditioner blew out that summer um, and I, I did that for several summers and several seasons not really fully realizing, you know, this was a profession and this was something that um, you could actually do and actually had um, rules and laws and strictures and people actually did it for a living. So fast forward, I moved to Chicago um, and took a job as a temp, honestly. And the first job they placed me in was as a grant writer. And that was sort of where it connected, where I went, oh, that's stuff that I've been doing for the theater. This is an actual thing that people do and I can turn this into a career and they always tell you when you're in actor training, if you find something you do better and love more, go do that. Um, so I did. And, and here we are 30 years later. Wow. Um, <laughs> and well, the world of fundraising for theater uh, is its own kind of unique uh, space versus all the other places where you've worked. And you've worked with lots of different kinds of organizations, both uh, yeah. but also as, a, as counsel. So um, what are some of the, the things that you see when you look across the sector as a whole as uh, similarities and differences for different kinds of organizations, big and small? You know, I think any membership-based organization, um, so, so I tend to love membership-based under that performing arts group. So you're talking, you know, any art museums, uh, performing arts, symphonies, dance, you know, et cetera, you have that natural constituency you know, your ticket buyer. So, so that whole acquisition piece, you have a captive audience that has already, you know, purchased your product. Mm -hmm. So going from that to social service where you don't have a natural audience, you still say, you still have a natural constituency. You still have, you know, folks that it makes sense that you share the mission with. Um, but, you know, donor acquisition really comes from the folks that are, have already bought your product. So, um, and, this, and this is where I have spent most of my career, both as a, a consultant and as a, a frontline fundraiser, is in, you know, the annual fund, annual giving, individual giving, acquisition, renewal, et cetera. Um, and I, I always tell people, I love the $50 donor, right? That's just this, that, that donor that is making that level of a contribution, whatever the dollar amount is, you know, that is meaningful to them, um, is to me just a beautiful act of philanthropy. But anyway. The difference between social service or public service org um, versus the arts, right? You have that natural audience, that natural constituency. So I won't say acquisition is easier. It, it's just a little more straightforward because you've got that 
ticket purchase path. Mm. Um, I've been thinking a lot about fundraising as sales um, lately, and that's a, that's a whole other podcast and a whole other interview. Um, but if we, if we talk about fundraising as sales, you know, who purchases the, the product of the nonprofit? It's really the beneficiary, the people mm. that we serve, with the exception of a couple of verticals, and the arts is one of them where the beneficiary of the mission is also the consumer of the mission, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the ticket buyers are the ones that are purchasing that mission, and they also become the donors. I think in social service, your donors are not also always your beneficiaries as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I, I, I think it does. And it's kind of an interesting segue to another big piece that you've worked on very recently. Uh, you, you delivered this flash class, of course, on this issue of digital. And uh, digital is being used in so many ways, as we know, over the past you know, uh, couple of decades in different ways. But I know you've described yourself as a professional fundraiser since the days of three by five cards and paper files. I think that's what you've said. <laughs> it's true. Literally the first job I had, right, in Chicago, our master file was you know, the, the hard files with three by five cars and the, and the carbon paper, you know, so, yeah. And that, that influences, of course, how we do everything, how we uh, attract people, how we keep in contact with people, how we properly thank people, and how we try to sustain those relationships. But with, with the advent of all that we've done in digital, especially recently with social media, there's been a lot of change. And I know you've had some, some thoughts on that. You talked about it a little bit flash class. Maybe you could share some of what you're thinking is, especially as a person who's, well, uh, has a very visible and, you know, vivacious presence online. <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I think you say that is, you know, sometimes a little too much time on his hands. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and too much access to, uh, uh, you know, the Twitter machine there. Um, I do think, Jay, that the principles of fundraising, regardless of the platform and regardless of how the technology changes, the principles remain the same. Our job is, was, and always has been about creating and crafting deep relationships between donors and their personal values and the organization. So fundamentally, the work remains the same. The technology has made it more accessible and in some, in some ways noisier. We have more ways to reach out to donors. We have more ways to engage them, whether it's social media or CRM platforms or um, wealth intelligence and wealth screening is you know, much more sophisticated than it was even 20 years ago. Um, that where my caution is and where my looking at the technology is, is, is being able for the nonprofit to invest in the best technology that they can to further their goals. In other words, you know, when, when folks come at me and say, sh- you know, should we do this? Should we be on Instagram? Should we be on Facebook? Should we have a CRM? Should we have a digital platform? What should we do? Um, I, I tend to think that the answer is invest in those areas that you can really invest in it well and pay attention to and drive those relationships. And if you, if you, if you, if you can't do that, it is, I think, far more effective to invest in those areas where you can versus having one toe in multiple waters, right? Mm-hmm. We know from all of the data and everything that we're seeing from multiple sources, particularly from the Fundraising Effectiveness Project, um, Giving USA, you know, we know that what works best is that uh, 
uh, multi-channel integrated communications platform where we're getting that really great story out uh, across multiple platforms and that multi-channel donors are responding higher than you know single channel mm -hmm. right so that investment in technology is about where can I as a frontline fundraiser and as a, a, a nonprofit make the best investment to drive relationships and, and give donors that real value from their uh, from their being a part of our organization. One of the things that um, makes makes your voice unique is that it's authentically yours. That's one of the things that comes through in, in you know your Twitter stream, but obviously all the work you do. And I wonder with organizations, if they might have the tool set, they might follow that recommendation, multi-channel, you know, using consistent messaging, telling the right stories. I'm wondering, are they finding their voice in the same way that, that you've clearly found yours so they can communicate with people in a way that's uh, exciting, invigorating, makes them feel like they can really be a part of it, partner with people with through their donations? See, and I think that's probably, to me, that is, I think there are two areas where that, that communications really drives from. And, and n number one is, you know, I'm, I call myself a reluctant data geek as well. I learned data because I had to, right? Um, I was an acting major for crying out loud. I failed college algebra three times, but I've become fascinated with donor data because number one, that tells us who we're telling the story to. It's going to be the greatest story in the world, but if we're not getting it to the donors, there's, that's a real indictment of data quality and the ability to raise money. But secondly, that investment in storytelling, and it's such a business buzzword right now, but I do think it is so important for nonprofits to really embrace that, the, the story that they're telling about themselves and about their beneficiaries, and that authentic voice, because we can, you know, Seth Godin calls it a connection economy, right? We can we can spot a fake a mile away. We can spot insincerity, you know, from the first tweet, from the first post. But there's so many ways that donors can interact with us, have that consistency and that tone and that voice across the platform is what really requires the investment in the cura in the curation. Like you know, I, I I love that you said that. It is such a huge compliment, and I appreciate that a lot. Um, but to be perfectly candid, that's work. I, I work really hard at making my online presence as authentic and as truly me as possible so that, you know, when I'm presenting, like I did this morning at a chapter, they're getting the same kind of feel that they are online, which is, you know, slightly irreverent, somewhat sarcastic, um, a little bit funny, but really, really serious about the importance of the work that we do, right? That, that's me. For a nonprofit to find that tone and that voice and who they are and let that authenticity come across, that's huge. And, and that makes all the difference, I think, in, in being visible and present on whatever platforms they choose to be on. And you're working with different sorts of clients today, um, probably around the country, uh, not only mm -hmm. council work, but as a speaker, as a trainer. Um, what's, the, what's the thing that you're trying to impart to them? most frequently? What's the hunger that, that you're helping to, to fill as they try to find a way to speak uh, that truthful voice and, and bring people into their mission? I, I am really encouraging and talking a lot about bringing a systems thinking approach to fundraising. Um, 
I was trained and brought up and I was very, very fortunate to have in Chicago a phenomenal mentor um, my first year, you know, full time in the, in the industry who encouraged me to take part in, well, it was NSFRE. I started to say SP, but it was NSFRE at the time, right? And the services and learn and, and all of that. But even so, I was pretty well siloed into a very specific you know, grant writing role. And that's what I learned. Um, our silos within organizations are what often create our problems where marketing and communications isn't talking to fundraising and the annual fund guy is over here on one side and marketing is over on the other and they're telling two different stories. So um, the hunger that I'm getting and what I'm, what I'm trying and working with most clients on and in most of the speaking engagements that I do is, is really bringing that systems thinking approach to the work that we do. I mean, even, even down to like the nitty gritty of gift entry. Gift entry isn't just about entering that data into the CRM. Gift entry is the first step in renewing that gift the next time. So your gift entry clerk may be your receptionist who's carrying double duties and wearing multiple hats, but getting that entry to think about the systems approach so that Gift entry begins the minute the check arrives or the gift arrives in the door or you know online and continues all the way through that acknowledgement going out. That's part of gift entry. And there's a whole system and a process there, which means whoever is writing and crafting the communications in the acknowledgement letters and the appeal has got to be thinking about that system too and how that informs gift entry and how that's executed in the CRM, right? So we break out of thinking of these separate sections of the work and think about it from that whole systems approach, mm-hmm. the end result of which is being is putting the donor at the center of that system. So everything is about honoring that gift that they made. That's so interesting. I, I heard recently uh, someone that is in, in our world, uh, Wayne Olson, talk about at Disney, yeah. how Disney had said, uh, perhaps it's apocryphal, I'm not sure, that the most important job at Disney was in the parking lot. Because if, if uh, that's sort of entry, I mean, if you don't do that right, then the whole day is lousy. And, but if you do it great, if you make people feel special, then the whole day is magical. That's what the Magic Kingdom is about. Well, go back to Vegas, right? Las Vegas is a very distinct experience. And each property on the strip is a very different experience. I've learned a lot. I have a lot of, um, so I'm an uh, alumni of the Leadership Las Vegas program. And I, I spent a year, you know, digging deep through with the Metro Chamber of Commerce and through that leadership program with, you know, a cross-section of leaders from across the city. I've learned so much from my colleagues in hospitality because they say the same thing. The minute you get out of the taxi, the minute you step into the property, your experience begins and everything about how you enter the casino, how you enter the property, how you check into your room, how you get there. All of that is what drives your experiences and is going to inform your whole Vegas experience and whether or not you come back and whether or not you become a champion for that property and build loyalty to that specific property. They're using in hospitality a lot of the same work that we're using um, in, in, uh, with, with neuroscience and neuromarketing to understand how customers respond and what they respond to and you know, I don't know if you've ever been to uh, the Mirage uh, in Las Vegas. It was the very first Vegas property that I ever experienced. And to this day, when I walk in, there's a very distinct 
smell in their mirage. And to this day, when I walk in and almost 25 years later, I hit that smell and it just brings back those memories of that first experience and how wonderful it was. And, you know, so whatever those triggers are bringing that into how we fundraise, I'm not saying we should, you know, let's start creating, you know, um, smell a vision or you know, scented appeals by any stretch, but all of those things that inform how a donor reacts with us and, and engages with us, whether it's social, whether it's our written appeal, whether it's at our gala, um, all of that creating that whole experience that is that puts them at the center of it. And, you know, as you talk about this, it strikes me that that system's thinking that you are able to impart to the people you work with now to train them in, to get them to think uh, about how to build those, those relationships and that approach over time. It's not something that we necessarily benefited from early in our own careers, that much of our growth and, and training has been organic. Um, right. uh, but, but now you have this, as you said, when you started, this 30 years that you can rely on when you, when you talk with people and, and give them some of your, uh, uh, you know, share some of your wisdom. I'm wondering is then you apply it in your own work and you look ahead for the next 30 years, what are some of the unfinished projects that you'd like to do? What are some of the things that you'd like to, to work on, uh, the things you'd like to achieve? I am um, somewhat obsessed with the idea, and I'm afraid to say this, because then I'm afraid somebody's gonna steal it from me, right? Um, I am somewhat obsessed with the idea that um, we as an industry have general ideas that we've all picked up over the years from different leaders, but is there a single source on um, data standards and creating you know, data processes and standards that really support our infrastructure? There's phenomenal books and there's phenomenal resources on, um, you, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of a number of different books that are out there on, uh, you know, high level kind of data analysis and data statistics, but but where is there a single source that really informs the frontline fundraiser on just what are the rules of data entry, regardless, you know, agnostic to platform, but what are the rules? What do we have to enter? How do you, why do you do a soft credit? You know, a single source for all of those things that we can really codify as much as possible, right? The how to do something versus just the why. And there's a lot of great resources on why, you know, find your why, and that's, that's a big deal. But I, I wanna step us further into how do you actually do that? One of the, one of the sessions that I do and get asked to do a fair amount is, um, if you remember, you have to be of a certain age to remember this, right? The old air supply, making love out of nothing at all, that old air supply song. Um, I do a session called making donor love out of nothing at all. And it, it is, it is specifically to, you know, you're supposed to get a, an acknowledgement letter out in 48 hours. Exactly how do you do that? I know I should, but what do I have to do in my systems and in my process to do it? So I continue to think that we need greater resources in the sector on things like that um, to, to really guide us into how to use data technology systems and processes uh, to, to make our fundraising better. And I appreciate that. Maybe not getting that song stuck in my head for the rest of the day, but for everything else you've said. And uh, <laughs> just, I don't know how you do it, Jay. <laughs> I don't know how you do it, Jim. <laughs> Thank you so much for all this. See, there's that authentic, you know, a little silly, a little sarcasm coming through. <laughs> we'll have to. <laughs> I hope. 